So I feel like there are more celebrity foodies in this world than ever before. Everyone seems to be a foodie in Hollywood right now. You said the F word. Today on The Eater Upsell, we're going to be talking to Mike Solomonov, one of the kings of the Philly restaurant scene. You might know him from his restaurant, Zahav, which is getting all sorts of national accolades. He also has the Federal Donuts restaurants, which are beloved, inexpensive eats. Yeah, donuts and fried chicken. But before we talk to him, Greg, there's something I want to talk to you about. There are a lot of celebrities who are really into food. Foodies. I have a problem with that word in a non-dogmatic way. Yeah. Like, I don't automatically recoil when someone says it, but Mm -hmm. I do think it implies a degree of being a jerk that I don't want to be. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Who do you think kind of started this thing? I have a few ideas, but... I, I feel like the the kind of king of celebrity foodie mountain is Aziz Ansari. That's exactly who I was going to say, yeah. From early on in his career, like when he was just sort of doing stand-up in New York and then when he started kind of entering liminally the realms of national celebrity, he always has been kind of hanging out with chefs and being very much aware of that kind of chef as celebrity phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of this is calculated and how much of this is just a byproduct of the fact that he went to NYU and in New York, it's impossible to get away from chef as celebrity. And I think that he was also, I think he's always been a part of stand up, talking about food and Chick-fil-A and stuff. Then there was a thing on Food and Rec, didn't he uh, have that thing about uh, funny food words? Oh, yeah, where he, like, on Parks and Rec was coming up with his character. Yeah. I don't know how much of that was him and how much of that was the show, but he became this face of, like, weird, bizarro food language. Mm-hmm. It's like lol speak of right. food words. It like, was like... Sat- chicky, chicky, parm, parm. Exactly. Parmesan was my favorite. It was funny, but I also thought it was a bit of satire or something, you know, with the way that people have, like, these kind of pet names for their favorite foods, you well, know? Well, Rachel Ray, I think, was the real elevator of those kind of diminutive almost childlike words like she insists on calling sandwiches sammies Mm -hmm. and that kind of play with language is really fun both to make fun of and to kind of actually do yeah the same way i say jk out loud even though i could also just say the actual phrase just kidding (laughs) totally but it's not just disease anymore food is this relatively new space for people to be famous in there's a lot of celebrities who star might have faded and they're like well you know what I can get a show on the cooking channel. What's the name of the, the actress from Goodfellas? Um, it's like her and her husband. They live in Park Slope. Demi Mazur. Yes. Extra virgin. Yep. I know her primarily as Madonna's makeup artist and also the woman from Entourage. There you go. Oh, yeah. She was great on Entourage. Yeah. yeah. The thing that I don't really like is that there seems to be a lot of model foodies. Like fashion models. Yeah. Who get really into food. Right. Oh, my God. This is... And I think that this all started with Padma Lakshmi as, you know, the co-host or whatever her job was on Top Chef. And it just became this thing of like, you know, every photo shoot she does is like, she's this beautiful woman, but look, the, the, the chocolate's dripping into her mouth. It hits these two really fundamental points of tension in our culture, I think. The first is this sort of sensual connection between sex and food, where these are these things that just physically feel good and we have built huge you know cultural structures around them that allow us to just assess it and talk about it constantly Mm -hmm. and then the other thing is that kind of cool girl idea of yeah she eats like a stoned frat bro yeah she looks like a freaking supermodel right here's how i feel about it is that i don't care what carly kloss or chrissy Teigen are eating um i don't know why i should care that they eat like regular people 
well, first of all, I'm really obsessed with celebrities. Like I read gossip blogs and I stay up on most of this stuff. I think that when someone talks about the food that they eat, you learn a tremendous amount about their lives. And something that bugs me about celebrity and the thing that keeps me obsessed with it is how completely artificial all of the things that are put out into the world are. But when someone's telling you what they eat, that says a ton. It's this window into actual humanity That's in a true. way that I think is rare. Okay, well, I think that's really interesting. But reading an interview where somebody's like, guess what? Cheeseburgers. Ugh, I love them. Yeah, but that's the package bullshit, right? Like, right. that's like someone saying, oh, my God, In-N-Out Burger is like my totally favorite thing. And that's, you know, a canned line you're saying to be relatable. Right. But if someone's doing something like a real diary, you know, mm-hmm. here's what I ate for 24 hours or even better. Here's what I ate for a week. Right. Like. There's not, you, you can fudge that a little, you know, mm-hmm. you can make sure you set up lunch dates at the coolest places and you can maybe leave out like the fact that you left 97% of the food on your plate, but you wind up being real in a way when mm-hmm. you convey that in a way that I think, you know, can't be airbrushed out. Uh, I was very fascinated by Jay-Z and Beyonce when they were first together and it would just pop up like here and there in page six. They went to like the craziest roster of restaurants, like night after night after night, all over New York City and beyond. You know, it I was think like they're really into food. As, yeah. I mean, and and not in a performative. I'm gonna make this my new career mm-hmm. way. Even though they did launch that vegan meal delivery service. Right. Yeah. But no, I remember for a really long time they were going to Lucali, this pizza mm-hmm. place in Brooklyn. I feel like they were going there too before it was totally vetted by everybody. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, who'd they hear about that from? You know, yeah. it wasn't like they read some list or something. But there's got to be someone, you know, you know, the Jay-Z and Beyonce have someone on their staff who reads Eater every single day, who's like living on the heat map, who's got his ear to the ground, is like probably texting with Danny Bowen and David Chang saying, listen, J and B want to go somewhere cool. Where do they want to go? I hope so. I hope they. Do. I remember that they had some sort of like anniversary dinner at uh, Kurt Guttenbrunner's Valse. Now that is a cherry place to go for something like that. It's a ten-year-old restaurant. Nobody writes about it. Nobody talks about it. It's really good. It's really good. It's really intimate. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really pro move. Yeah, I think a lot of celebrities would choose whatever the sexiest, hottest place is, or somewhere really old school, old money, like the Four Seasons. Right. You know, the other thing that you have to realize too, though, is like Jay-Z is a New Yorker. He grew up here. He knows the city. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's been going to Valse for years. (laughs) Since day one. Since day one. He and Kurt Gutenbrenner are like old pals. Yeah. So right now in the Eater Upsell Studios, we are joined by... Uh, who I consider to be a titan of not just the Philly restaurant scene, but the kind of national restaurant scene right now. He's a big deal. He's a very big deal. It's Michael Solomonov. I got the name right. You did. You nailed it. (laughs) Excellent. Mike Solomonov runs a bunch of restaurants in Philly. He's the chef at Zahav and the co-owner and partner at many, many more, especially if you consider that Federal Donuts has like four plus locations. Welcome, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. You did a very nice thing, which is you brought us a box of Federal Donuts. I did. I did. (laughs) Which has been getting these like very lustful stares from our producers. I know. Well, it was weird on the train up here, I thought. People kept staring at it. You know, I feel like they, especially on the Amtrak to... uh, New York, I think people understand the brand, and they were kind of eyeing out the donuts. Well, wow. Federal Donuts is huge in New York, is which that? is crazy considering it's not here. 
But I, I, I think there's nothing New Yorkers love more than the stuff they can't have. No, I mean, we're talking about a $17 like bolt bus ride. Like New Yorkers can't have it, but they can. Right, but you have to put in effort and time right. or you have to get a friendly person from Philadelphia to bring a box <laughs> of them back up on the train. So I know actually several New Yorkers food writer people that have made trips to Philly like just to eat at your collection of restaurants for one weekend. That's really flattering. Do you find a lot of, you know, a lot of kind of cross-pollination? Is the dining room just nothing but New York food writers at it, all times? It's weird actually in the it's not I mean not just writers but we've in the summer in particular I think that a lot of um people from like folks from DC and New York are are visiting Philly and they um are going to like the Barnes Foundation or running up the Rocky Steps or whatever, <laughs> you know, and there's like one or two meals that they can have. And, and we're lucky that we're, you know, Zahav is one of them, I guess. And Federal Donuts could be another. And I mean, there's a lot of amazing restaurants in Philly, uh, a lot like great value and, and really exciting. And I think really unique to Philadelphia, not just like, let's do it in New York. Let's do it in Philly. Let's do it in DC. So um, I think that, uh, I'm flattered and I'm happy to be part of like the Philly dining scene. It's cool. Do you think there's something unique to Philly that makes it such an attractor to people from other cities? That's a great question. I think that the cost of doing business in Philly is a little bit um, cheaper because of the BYOB culture. A lot of chefs or restaurant people can, um, with a lot less resources than, you know, having to do it in Philly or, um, or rather New York or DC can open a restaurant. Like it doesn't cost quite as much, um, if you're going to go BYOB and I think things are just a little bit more reasonable. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's just, there's less limitations. So there's room to be adventurous as a chef or to not have to just like be the burger and kale salad restaurant. I, yeah, I think so. I, I, the problem is, is that those, the restaurants can also be short lived. Um, you know, Philly doesn't have the density that New York or DC has either, uh, so I think that in order to make it in Philly, you have to, you can't, there's no, <laughs> hype doesn't really work. You know, like the big chefs or the um, New York transplants, the ones that do well in Philly are ones that like work their ass off and, and the food is fantastic, you know? That seems like a pretty reasonable like set of requirements for success. You, you, you know? think, I mean, I, I don't know. I, it, hype is a weird thing and restaurants are a weird thing and food is a really weird subjective thing so people talk about the rage or this and that and I, I don't know it's weird to travel a little bit and eat I mean I do all the time um but I don't you know the last thing I want to do is disappoint people I don't want people to come to Philly visiting from New York or DC or wherever and say well this was just okay this is lackluster with any of our concepts with Zahab with Diesinghoff with the Fisher definitely with Federal Donuts or the barbecue place um Percy Street I don't want we don't want to disappoint. So I think that for us, and, and I don't know if this um, is like just a Philly thing, but like the service has to be great, whether it's you're spending five bucks on like donuts and coffee or chicken or, or you're having a meal at Zahav or you're having barbecue at, at Percy Street. It's got to, we have to kill it, you know? And I, and I think that without that attitude, I don't think we would do that well. How many, how many employees do you have in your restaurant group now? <laughs> You know, we just had a, um, in February, we had like a holiday party. I don't know, maybe 200, something like that. Maybe a little bit less. Like a very, very small town. Yeah, it's a <laughs> lot. It's a village. Yeah. We have a great, I mean, we have a great, uh, a great restaurant culture, I think. So you have always been a cook, right? You, you, yeah. um, and 
sort of moving over to being a restaurateur on top of being a cook is relatively new in your career. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I had the privilege of working for, um, when I was just cooking, I worked for some like incredibly talented people. Um, and, uh, so Terrence Fury, who was the, a sous chef and a saucier at La Berna Den opened, uh, or didn't open. He was the employed as the chef of striped bass when I had just start, like moved to Philly and his brother, brother, Patrick Fury worked at Le Cirque and then was the chef of Avenue B. And I worked for both of those guys, um, for a bit. And then I worked for, uh, Mark Vetri at Vetri when there was only three, you know, three kitchen employees, Mark being one of them, you know, Mark was just super entrepreneurial and Terrence was like super French, you know, and I just got a, a very, um, I got a varied sort of experience. And then the first job I had as a chef was with my um, current business partner, Steve Cook, um, who was a finance guy in the late 90s in New York, hated it, um, went to like French Culinary Institute at night and then, you know, moved back to Philly. He was a Wharton graduate, so he moved back to Philly and started cooking there and then opened his own restaurant after just a few years of cooking. And I got to... You know, he and I became very good friends, and and also um, I got to not only be a chef, but like really work with a small business owner, and we've obviously partnered since then. So I feel like, yeah, making the transition from cook to chef to owner is really tricky, and I I don't even know, like I don't know exactly what I do anymore. <laughs> you know, I run around on trains with donuts, or I I don't know. I mean, I like to I like to cook at Zahav. I don't like to wear like a clean chef coat and go into all the restaurants and pretend to be the chef like that doesn't work you know all the chefs that we have or the you know like Aaron O'Shea is the partner at Percy Street she's also a chef I don't I can't do a better job than she can there you know and Abe Fisher uh has got Yehuda Seichel who is an old sous chef of ours at, at Zahav who worked his ass off, you know, and, and, and Abe Fisher is part of his identity. I mean, the cuisine is part of his identity. You know, Steve and I, Steve arguably more than I did had to do with the menu. He and Yehuda worked mostly on the menu of Abe Fisher. I mean, I'm like the full-time chef of Zahav. It's difficult <laughs> to focus, you know, more than I, I actually like can, um, if that makes sense. And Emily, uh, who's the chef of Diesengoff, like I can't, you know, I can't do what she does. So, I don't know. A lot of this is like learning how to sort of back off and not stick my face in everything that isn't really my business. <laughs> I mean, it is at the end of the day, right? But I think that kind of getting out of the way and letting people do their job and kind of what they're here to do is, has been a, a big part of it. I mean, that's, I feel like that's the hard lesson that anyone who makes it into senior management has to learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's like you can't micromanage. You've got to let talented people be talented. What's well, weird, on one hand, you can't micromanage. On the other hand... You know, if I walk into Zahav, it's like immediate. I'm like, this needs salt. This the bathroom's dirty. This, you know, make sure to smile and make eye contact. So there is micromanagement, but at, like with the managers, like they have to learn how to make mistakes and they have to learn how to be owners. Actually, I mean that's kind of what we try to do. We hire cooks to be sous chefs, to be chefs, to be you know. It's a path. It's a path. If I can just rewind a little bit. How did you get into food? Were you a kid that grew up loving food? Did you like cook with your family? Not at all. I was like a, I was into a couple things, but I was a really picky eater and I was like really not into food and I like didn't eat like tomatoes till I was 18 or whatever. And I, uh, 
dropped out of college. I was like a photo major guy or like a studio arts guy. And I dropped out of school and uh, moved back to Israel where my family was living. And I got a job cooking there just because cause I couldn't. My Hebrew wasn't good enough to serve. So I like needed <laughs> I needed a job. And I um, what was the restaurant? Was it? Like- well, actually, I started a bakery. Uh, which was cool, and then I worked at a restaurant called The Coffee Tree, which is like a cafe in the center of this little town called Kfar Saba, which is like north of Tel Aviv. And it was great. I loved it. And I got into food. I actually got into eating as I got into cooking. Um, it was sort of like a parallel, you know? And, and it was um, it was awesome. I really loved it. I really do like it. I really miss, you know, cooking as much as I used to do like I, I miss that aspect of it but but cooking is great so like the hands-on kind of thing about it yeah you know what's interesting that we have a station at zahav that is like the taboon it's like the bread station so you're standing in front of a wood-burning oven and you make lafa which is like a big puffy iraqi style pita that we make for everybody and we serve hummus with it right so everybody so everybody basically gets hummus and, and lafa at the restaurant and it, Generally, that's the station that I work now. Hmm. So I physically get to make food for just about every single person that um, comes in the restaurant, which is like great, you know, because as a chef of, uh, of a large restaurant or like busy restaurant, it's u- usually you're not doing that sort of thing. Usually you're like, you know, tasting food and making sure it looks right or whatever, but you don't get to like physically make food for everybody. So what's involved in working that station? Well, it's interesting. It's sort of the inside expediting station. So just about all the food minus the desserts and the salad team come which are like the station. little salads exactly that, yeah. they're like the little we have like six salads that go out um with the hummus and just about everything comes through that station and all the tickets are expedited through that station and you get to see the front door and it's kind of on the way to the bathroom so like it's the godfather station exactly <laughs> it's right speaking of micromanagement right yeah. I'm like, why are there 10 people waiting without their, you know? So, but it, for me, it's awesome because I get to, I don't know, you know, the customer experience, the guest experience is like the most important thing in any restaurant, right? It's the, whatever, whatever it is that they walk away with, whatever memory you give them that they walk away with is the most important thing. Um, and you get to physically be part of that and not just making the food and not just making sure the food is going out okay, but literally like, you know, Telling people the bathroom is on the left, like that's a big deal to me, you know, and it's a big deal for our customers, I think, to know that, um, and for the employees to know that, like, an owner is there, you know, going down like a ton of bricks on the bread station. Like, that's the thing, too. You get fucking buried. You still get in the weeds, even? Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Every day. Not every day, but a lot. How many nights a week, um, like, on average, are you working at Zahav? Well, usually it's five nights a week. Uh, that because we've got like a cookbook going out and because there's a lot of like events that all, seem to be happening all the time, like today, for example, like mm-hmm. I should be at Zahav doing the, um, the chef's counter or the tasting menu tonight. I've got my sous chef beau doing it. And so I would say five nights a week mostly, but, um, if there's like weird stuff happening elsewhere, then I'll, but that's nights. no bullshit. I mean, that's not just sort of like paying lip service to being like, I'm the chef at Zahav. Like you are actually right. The- full-time well that's it and like any sort of menu changes and all that stuff i mean it it's a huge restaurant so it it, um are huge for like philly standards big enough too big for me right (laughs) so my business partner steve who is everybody sort of thinks is just like the money guy or whatever i mean he and i come up with menu ideas uh all the time i mean i my sous chefs i i 
try to empower them as much as humanly possible. So the menu is always sort of changing. Yeah, it's a lot of work. So Zahav is an Israeli restaurant. Yeah. Which is an interesting type of food. Yes. Um, because Israel is a relatively young entity, like from a conceptual perspective. And also that Israel, much like the United States, is a nation largely comprised of immigrants. Yes. So what does Israeli food mean in the context of a restaurant in Philadelphia? Well, so... Israeli food, and this is a great question, and, and every day we sort of ask ourselves what, what it is that we're doing. But So the easiest thing to say is the, food, the Israeli food is food that's being cooked in Israel right now, which is you know, kind of a paradox when you're like in eastern Pennsylvania or in Philly cooking food, right, that is, should be in Israel. But really, Israel is made up of I don't know how many different cultures. Um, you know, you have like the Jewish community that has all moved back to Israel basically after being like in the diaspora post Babylon. Right. So, <laughs> so like the got, last four or 5,000 years of uh, spread. A little bit less than that, but still <laughs> thousands of years. You've got um, Palestinians, you've got the um, Ottoman influence, which is huge in that area. Right. And then you've got the surrounding countries. You've got Jews that have moved from Syria. You've got Druze from Lebanon, Syria. Uh, you've got Greeks and Turks, Yemeni, North African, like Libyan, Algerian, Moroccan, um, people from Cyprus. My grandmother was from Bulgaria, but from Spain before that, like from like the Inquisition, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, so you have so much and then you also have it all in one place being incubated in, in like the, this part of the world where like modern agriculture began. Right. So there's a lot, I mean, it's super, um, stimulating as far as cooking goes um the different that what we try to do with Zahav though is look at Israel as a whole and say like well we're going to do this with this with that so like if you're in Israel and you want Yemenite food you go to a Yemeni restaurant right or if you want Moroccan you go to like a Moroccan person's house or a Moroccan restaurant or whatever and we have this sort of third person perspective where we can bring it all kind of together and like synthesize it and do yeah. the entire country and we can do it. We can take all the different cultures and, and we can bring it together. We can use different cooking techniques um, like uh, cooking royal trumpet mushrooms, which you don't really find in the Middle East, right? You can cook those over the charcoal and marinate them like you would lamb shishlik, right? So it tastes super meaty and then just... I made that recipe the other day. That's from what I heard. Cookbook. How was yeah, it? It was amazing. It oh, was so terrific. So great. this cookbook is coming out in October, Yeah, right? October 6th. Yep. And I... Um, basically my most prized possession right now is my galley of this. Oh, book. thank you so um, much. It's true. She <laughs> let I me like, look at it for like 10 minutes. And then, and then I was like, where took it back? Was, yeah. <laughs> oh, I, where I is it right now, Greg? It's in my backpack. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> right next to the stolen donuts. <laughs> but no, that was, but it was an amazing recipe. Like, and it did feel like it had that, that fusion. I mean, there's like, like King trumpet mushrooms, like who, who, that's not a traditional Middle no, Eastern ingredient. Not at all. But then you have this marinade of like pureed raw onions and allspice, which yes. is this genius, crazy addition. Right. And that's sort of like the meat, like the, it makes it taste like steak or like lamb or something. Yeah. So what's the thought process behind coming up with a recipe like that? Well, so a couple things. One, marinating, using like things like onion juice and garlic juice help break down meat. And uh, when you cook them over charcoal or not, but when you caramelize them and the, and the sugar is cooked in the onion and the acid in the onion is broken down the meat, it tenderizes it, right? But it gives everything this like robust sort of like Israeli barbecue kind of thing. Um, the mushrooms, but the idea of cooking 
vegetables as a meat is also a big thing in Israel. I mean, for many, many years, it was super poor. So the diet is like very vegetable heavy. Even now, it's like when you go there, it's like cucumber, tomato salad three times a day for, for a meal, right? Um, so the idea of using vegetables as, as like the entree is, a, is actually a very much Israeli thing. Uh, the mushrooms, when you marinate them with the onion juice and especially the allspice, which is kind of particular to that dish, and you roast them, to me, it, it, it really does taste like roasted meat. Um, so why not showcase it? Like serve it with a little trina, bring it over to the plate on the skewer, and you've got something that is vegan or vegetarian, but not because you're only serving a vegan customer because it tastes really freaking good, you know? Um, and trumpet mushrooms and head of the woods are things that we get in Philly all the time. And Philly is, I mean, Philly has, I mean, talk about like the amazing agriculture that you'd have in yes. the Middle East. Like Philly has incredible seafood coming from the East and incredible dairy coming from the West. Yep. And like, I mean, it's, a, I feel like the, the farmer's markets in Philly are unlike <laughs> any that I've seen they're, on the East Coast. They're really good, except for that we don't have cucumbers and tomatoes like, you know, every single month, right? We right. only have them for like two or three months. So what we have to do is take like butternut squash or take cabbage and say, well, how is this going to, what what spices, what technique, what little like nuance of cooking is going to make this taste appropriate for what we're doing? Because I'm not going to order tomatoes in February when it's like seven fucking degrees outside. <laughs> I'm not going to do it, you know? And, um, you know, and that to us has been what has been so liberating. That's what makes our restaurant relevant. It's not just like, I'm not an Israeli grandmother. It wouldn't taste right. Wait, hold up. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. I feel like a freaking Israeli grandmother. Like, I want to just, I'm like tired. I want to just play like backgammon and like not talk to people. But I, um, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not. So what we have to do is figure out what makes it relevant, you know? And, and, um, and, and like I said, that's what sort of made Given Zahav identity. When we first opened, we had this like little private room that I would do like chef's tasting menu, like, you know, sort of ego I'm a molecular chef and I want to like, you know, show off or whatever. Um, and then we would do the classic stuff that was like not really, um, not really creative. It was just kind of like, this is what they do in Israel. Let's do it here. And it like sucked. Like the whole experience sucked because we weren't paying enough attention to, to the regular menu. And because we were cooking like modern Israeli modernist food for like 10 people in like 2008 and it, nobody liked it, you know, and, and it was stupid. Right. To, to me, like we, after that period, after I was like, you know, it, what, it just wasn't working. Like we almost closed actually. I mean, we almost went under in 2008, my business partner and I, well, it was a rough year. It was not a great year to open an Israeli restaurant in Philadelphia, <laughs> especially in Philly. Cause the Phillies were in the playoffs. We were like, it was like new election. That stock market, you know, everything sucked. Um, and I was like, personally, there was a lot of like horrible shit happening in, in my life. And my business partner and I were like in the weeds. And at one point, it was like we weren't listening to our customers. We weren't focusing the attention on what we wanted to express with Israeli food. And uh, at one point, my business partner was like, dude, you got to just cook. You, you know, I'm a, I'm a chef. Like, I need to be creative. I need to interpret. I need to have outlets for whatever ideas I have. And, and he was like, you're not doing it with what we're doing right now. This isn't connecting with people. It worked after a while. We stopped with like the fancy food. I threw out the circulator. I mean, we cook meat over charcoal. Yeah. We cook lafa in to order in a wood burning oven. 
I mean, like, that's the exciting stuff, not the... I don't need to copy what everybody else is doing just so we can have, like, a cool plating technique. So when know? did people kind of take notice of, like, these changes and you guys pivoted? Mm. Pivoting. It's like a startup. We did a pivot. <laughs> we actually, I mean, we got a lot of really good press out of the gates. I just think it was sort of peppered. Like, it was very hype-based. I mean, nobody was really doing, like, Israeli food, you know? And uh, I think that that generated a lot of buzz um we it, we started to like take paychecks or not be concerned that we were going to fail probably in april of uh 2009 so it took about a year almost a year to like make it and i remember we had this like you know our first anniversary party and it was like thank god we, <laughs> <laughs> we were so elated we were so ecstatic because it was like you know we could pay people and you know, eventually started taking paychecks and all that stuff. It was cool. And now it's like six or seven years later. And yeah, May fifth will be seven years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's forever. Congratulations. In, yeah. In restaurant time. Yeah, it's like dog years. I know. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Israeli grandmother. <laughs> but I I feel like now in the, in the last year in particular, the palate of the Middle East has become a trendy palate. Yes. In in the United States. Yes. Like, like it was Chinese and then it was Korean and then it was like. California and right now everyone is like losing their minds with excitement over like sumac. Yes, sumac, za'atar, all those things. What's ironic is that the Pennsylvania Dutch, like the guys that we buy our produce from, uh, they've been using sumac to make um, pink lemonade for like hundreds of years. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, totally. It's good. Well, sumac is lemony. Sumac is what the lemon flavor was in the Middle East before the Moors brought lemons, actually. So, yeah, sumac's been used forever. It's awesome. You can cure things with it, and it doesn't ceviche. Like, it, there's no real acid or no uh, substantial amount of acid. So you can, like, rub something like a piece of fish with tons of it to make it lemony without cooking it. That is a good food hack. Yep. Yeah. There's a Palestinian <laughs> dish called sumakaya, I think. and it's like Which a, just means, like, the sumac dish. Basically. Right? Well, it's braised lamb that's finished with a shitload of sumac, <laughs> and it's, like, super sour and pomegranate. So it's got that, like, red fruit and lemony. Uh, and you finish the stew with trina. It's, it's awesome. So, yeah, sumac is great. People are using it. You know, I think that people are calling food Israeli now. They're not. Like, Israelis in Israel are opening restaurants that are about Israeli food. They're not going to, like, Michelin restaurants in Spain or in France and coming back and trying to um, reproduce that, you know? And I think that, I mean, for me, like, that's what everybody was doing in my generation. Like, we all, everyone was going to, like, Spain. I almost actually, before I met Steve, I almost went to um, Arzac. I almost, like... You know, they have, like, a two-year unpaid stage in San Sebastian that I was, like, going to do. And I'm glad I didn't, you know. Understanding that, you know, Middle Eastern food, Israeli cuisine, is, there's bigger awareness about it and people are getting really interested in it. Did that influence at all the way that you put the cookbook together? Is it going to break down the ingredients for people? Or? It is. I mean, I think that Zahav, the cookbook, is definitive. Uh, it's definitive Israeli cooking for like Westerners, basically. I think. I mean, not for <laughs> just Westerners, but I think that like the thing about the Middle East and and um, what I think a lot of people are experiencing, it's so like mysterious, right? Like everything is sort of ancient and it's huge. Like it's ambiguous. Like North African cooking is totally different than like food of the Levant and and Israeli food. For the long time, people thought it was just like falafel and shawarma, which is not. I mean, which is not 
native to Israel either. So I think that we just wanted to break it down and make it approachable and um, try to not make it like asterisks, go to your local Middle Eastern supermarket and be terrified, right. you know, of like not being able to find the right ingredient or whatever. So we really wanted to make it approachable and definitive and sort of give logical steps while, encompany, while encompassing what we felt like was representative of, of Israeli cuisine. Did you have fun writing the cookbook or was it like a nightmare? Uh, I've, heard, I've heard both. It could be either. Honestly, it was one of the best experiences I've had involving food. Um, Whoa. My business partner, Steve, wrote the book. Um, Dorothy uh, Kalins, who's um, just a freaking genius and a She's pioneer, amazing. produced the book. Don Morris did page layout. And my good friend, Mike Persico, shot the book. And, and we, Mike and I have been friends forever. And, and he, this is his first cookbook. So it was just, you know, and it was about <clears throat> Israeli food in the States. And it was about our restaurant. It was about my family. And, and honestly, at the end of the day, like when we finished, I was like, I have a greater understanding of what it was that we were trying to do for so many years. It gave me perspective on on what we were doing. And I feel like that's that's some magical shit right there. So there's, you know? there's a touch of personal narrative and in, in mixed in with most all of this. it. Most of it is personal. And the fact that it wasn't written by a ghostwriter or somebody that was like a professional cookbook author, which would have made it a lot easier. <laughs> I, I wish uh, they like categorized cookbooks that way in the bookstore. Like with a ghost writer. <laughs> I know. Without. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there are plenty of people that do a really good job at that. If, would have been great. The fact of the matter is Dorothy saw my business partner, Steve wrote a chapter or a head note and she was like, okay, you can do this, you know? And she just sort of nudged when she did. I mean, I wrote, I wrote the intro, which was like 20 pages fucking long. And she was like, no, dude, you got to redo that. So she directed everything. And Steve, he and I share a large part of this book. So I, I mean, even the, the restaurant was sort of built by us, right? And Steve and I have known each other for years and years, and, and we've been through good times and really awful times together. So it just seemed the right, like the right thing to do. So it is, um, it is my narrative, I guess. And it's like Steve's narrative as well. And um, I don't feel terribly comfortable writing or talking about myself. So whenever you and also, I'm a chef. Like, I don't know how people write this shit on their own. I mean, I would need, like, six months of, like, not doing anything else. <laughs> you know, we're running restaurants, opening restaurants, all that stuff. I mean, it would be incredibly difficult to write a book, I think, Well, we don't, we're writers, and we don't run restaurants on the side. I mean, yeah, no. Well, it's you hard. don't, Helen. <laughs> Greg it's has also, a secret restaurant. I mean, it's really difficult. I don't know what, how you guys do it, but writer's block is a thing. It's and the worst. It is, it is the worst, and it's, for me... You know, I experience it with writing like menu ideas or whatever, and I can't be in the restaurant. Like, I can't come up with great ideas when I'm in the restaurant cooking. I have to be doing, I have to be on a train or I have to be somewhere else, and and it's difficult. I mean, it just takes so much discipline. So, for Steve to write the book and for us to continue doing our jobs, it was really a lot of work. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your personal life, though. Even though you just said you don't like to, um, the. Book, the book is dedicated to your brother, yeah. David, yeah. who was killed while serving in the Israeli army. Yeah. was How long ago was that? That was uh, in 2003. So before Zahav came into existence, but after oh, yeah. you, you were a chef. Yeah, so I'd started cooking, and I was working at Vetri Restaurant, and we, uh, I had just like, accepted the sous chef position, which is funny because it's like three employees. Like I was the guy that did the ordering. I wasn't, you know, 
And I went, and so what he used to do at Vetri, which is like super Italian, is close in the summer for three weeks, which unfortunately he doesn't do anymore, right? <laughs> and well, you would, he's a big deal now. Well, I'm, come to the restaurant also, I'm like, who closes a restaurant for three weeks? I wish we could do that. But we, um, so I went to Israel, and I hadn't been there in almost four years, like since I'd sort of started cooking. And my brother David, uh, unlike me, had sort of assimilated and, and gone to high school in Israel and... Uh, you know, when we moved back, I became sort of, I stayed American and he became, I guess, Israeli. And uh, so everyone goes to the military, right? Everyone does army service. And he was in an infantry unit and was um, right before his, uh, so I went back from Vetri to visit and he was like on his last month of service and we got to hang out and we hadn't really spent a lot of time together in almost four years. So we got to hang out for like weeks and just do like brother stuff. Like we hadn't, you know, those were pretty formative years that we had missed. So it was, it was awesome, you know? And then I came back to the States. He was supposed to finish. And then a few days before his release, which happened to coincide with Yom Kippur, uh, he was killed. Um, patrolling like the Lebanese border, basically. Jesus. Yeah. So, you know, after that, I mean, this is all sort of hindsight. I didn't realize this, but I needed a way to get close to him because I had missed so many years and because he was 21 and I felt, you know, like shit was just falling apart. And uh, it took a while to sort of ring it in and understand what, what it was that was happening. But even through, you know, after that, I didn't want to really cook Italian food. Like it didn't make sense for me to do. And it, and, um, the idea of like the cliched idea of like cooking Israeli food to get close to my brother. I wasn't something that we could like formulate. It just sort of, it kind of happened. It made sense and people liked it, you know? So Steve hired me at Marigold. Um, and I started cooking, it was like American, new American or whatever, but we started using Israeli ingredients like, uh, Hawaj, which is like a Yemenite, Yemenite spice blend or Zatar, um, you know, and, uh, sumac and, and all these sort of things. And, People took notice, and it was a way to sort of identify uh, with Israel, to be perfectly honest with you. And it was, um, you know, it's a it's a way to advocate for Israel without having to get, like, political. And I guess in a way, it brings me closer to Dave. I got to say, that's uh, really, you know, touching, and thank you for sharing that. Um, I w- could never, because as someone who doesn't really cook very much, yeah. Um, it's very hard for me to understand um, the idea of like cooking, t- like you know, in somebody's honor or to get closer, like you were saying. You right. Know? Is that just something? Is that like kind of just you know? It's the process of doing it. I think it is. I don't think it's like terribly cognitive. Like, it's not. It's not happening in real time. You know, you sort of look back and you're like, okay, this is why. This is why all this has happened. And. Uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, it definitely wasn't easy, too. I mean, speaking of personal stuff, like, I'd gone through a lot of, like, substance abuse issues after my brother was killed, and it took a long time to, like, focus on, on just the good or the bittersweet. I don't, like, uh, when I'm, like, rolling bread out, I'm, like, well, I, I'm doing this for, like, Dave, or it's, like, Lafa's for David or anything, but I don't know. His story is unique, right? And I think that um, Israel can tend to get a bad rap sometimes, and... He was just doing his job. He was p- 
patrolling a border and he was, you know, killed, he was shot by Hezbollah snipers that were in Lebanon firing into Israel. And it was just like totally unfortunate and fucked up. And, it, you know, and he was a peaceful kid that wasn't, you know, like didn't hate, you know, didn't like hate Arabs or anything like that. And it was just, it's important for me. I don't want to move back to Israel. Um, actually, after he was killed, I was like considering moving back to, to Israel to join the military, which would have, you know, I would have like shot my eye out or something. You know, I would have, I would have sucked um, at that. And I don't think that that's the best way that for me to represent Israel and for me to um, pay, you know, homage to my brother. I don't think that would have, would have been the right thing to do. So this seems more appropriate. Cooking in general, but a restaurant in particular is, is a really subtle and powerful avenue to, to express like your allegiance and appreciation to a place without having to be there. Yes. You know, to sort of serve as an ambassador. Totally. Totally. And I think that, you know, we're celebrating like food, which is celebrating people and culture. And I just think that, you know, this cliched shit comes all the time. I don't, I don't I'm not like going to create peace in the Middle East through food. But honestly, like it would be a much easier, more diplomatic way than what's actually happening now. <laughs> so maybe at some point, you know, I want to be able to celebrate these cultures, you know, that David died defending. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, I think it's, and plus we have a lot of fun. Like, that's the thing too. I don't want to say it's all for my, you know, my brother or whatever, because like the truth is that we have like 60 employees that work their ass off every day at Zahav to, to have a great restaurant, to provide great hospitality. And the um, diners who come in and have amazing, delicious meals that have huge amounts of like happiness and celebration attached course. to them as opposed to of course. sort of a somber memorial. Right, exactly. So I don't want to – so all this, like what I've just said about my brother, I don't want to – that shouldn't minimize the work that everybody does every single day to like get through service yeah. or, you know. So around this time last year, there was a story in The Times by Frank Bruni mm-hmm. and, um, that was about – your personal history and with substance abuse and some of these things we just talked about. And I just remember reading that and like applauding, you know, the fact that you were so candid about this stuff and th- that you were sharing. I, Cause I've always kind of understood that there's been um, a lot of substance abuse and just restaurant life in general. Yes. And that people don't really talk about it. Right. Or when they do, they talk about it in such a glorifying way. Like, yeah, you can totally just shoot up heroin and go work the line. Right. It's like right. the Kitchen Confidential, like... I know. Yeah. Well, you know, I just felt like I had been clean and sober for a while. And I was fine talking about that. And I wasn't that particular or that specific. But the more positive accolade we got, I, I thought it was... I don't know. It just seemed like the right time to be like brutally honest, you know? And I don't know. It sort of scared the shit out of my parents. They knew that I was clean. They knew I went to rehab. They knew I was in recovery and um, I was in a program and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, the details, I think, probably shocked a lot of people. If you have any experience at all with, with substance abuse, you know, you realize that like any, any, substance can be super dangerous like everyone's like whoa you uh you know smoke crack isn't that crazy and i'm like i guess so if i got drunk and drove into somebody and killed them it would be just you know it would be just as upsetting or so i think that you know i wasn't trying to glorify and i think that you know i think that it was like a little bit shocking and and a good read but i mean i think that for everything that uh, for every good piece of literature that was written about us or about me or whatever, I think, I don't know, it's like very useful to other people that are either struggling in the industry or not in the industry 
to know that this is like something that is that is happening and and that we're all sort of vulnerable and and um, susceptible to this kind of stuff is there anything you do as a you know as a restaurateur you know with a big staff um presumably a lot of younger chefs i mean are you do you ever talk about this stuff with them i do i'm pretty open about it i don't like preach or whatever you know when i got back from from rehab i was like oh shit everybody here has like got a problem or whatever and it the reality was that i was the worst drug addict of anybody if you had to like rate you know it was like um (laughs) my behavior was like the worst um so it took a little bit of time but i would like to think that the culture in our restaurant or maybe our organization is a little bit more tame um and it's not because we like identify you know it just we don't there's no like nobody gets fucked up during service nobody gets it's not part of the culture and it's a really demanding restaurant right so if people get wasted or up all up all night partying and come into the restaurant and don't perform well it's like a problem mm-hmm. um and i don't you know people can do whatever they want that's fine if it starts affecting work then it's a huge problem and if i see people that are struggling personally i'm going to try to help them and if i can't help them then they're going to leave has it changed the way you think about kitchen culture in general i think in general yeah i mean i think it's a really (laughs) you know people talk about like working in restaurants because they can party and get banged up and i'm like i don't know dude my friends that work in like banks or whatever they don't get wasted at work like when they're like counting money or maybe they do not that i know (laughs) of i just i think that we work more effectively as a team when everybody's like there to do the job and i also think that um, if you have an issue with substances, eventually it's going to catch up. People use the word functioning drug addict or alcoholic. I mean, it, you're only functioning until you're not, you know, and yeah. I functioned, I mean, I hit an addiction while I met my business partner, while we got all these awards, while we opened restaurants, while I got married. I mean, I hit, I hit an addiction for my wife. I mean, she didn't find out till two years after that she was like married to like a, like a crackhead basically. And it was like, yeah, if I functioned, fine. But, I mean, I was always a step away from, like, dying or a step away from, like, getting caught or, um, you know, I mean, so many close calls. Um, and I think that eventually things just go really bad and, and you can't really – you have to deal with those things. Whether they're people that I know that work for me or with me, I mean, it's sort of my responsibility as an employer but also as a friend um, or as uh, a recovering addict to, to try to help. Sounds like you've had a very busy, very intense last decade or so of your life. <laughs> yeah. That's what I mean. I'm like an Israeli grandparent, dude. It's time to just play checkers and shit on like park benches. I, I wish I could do like that. You've earned that. Right. So what's next for Federal Donuts? Mm. Things are so, humming along. You got Yeah. It. So we got yeah. some really cool stuff happening with Federal Donuts. We, to totally change the subject. Exactly. Yeah. Phew. <laughs> Thank God. I just pissed my pants, right? Um, <laughs> All of us at Federal Donuts, um, but sort of spearheaded by um, Steve uh, Cook, he sits on the hospitality board of Broad Street Ministries, which is a community church that also provides um, social services and food, like they do meals, um, at a church on Broad Street in Philadelphia uh, for people that are in need. Um, And uh, we started volunteering there. Our company goes in quarterly and, like, we'll serve lunch 
uh, or serve a meal to a few hundred people that need it. But Broad Street Ministries does um, counseling for people. It is an um, it's a mailbox for people. You know, like you can't get benefits or whatever without an address. So it's an address to maybe a thousand people or something like that, or even more in Philly. So Steve sits on the hospitality board and we decided that um, what we were going to do at Federal Donuts was get whole chickens and the pieces of chicken that we couldn't like fry and serve because we serve donuts and fried chicken, we were going to make soup out of. I was like, we'll make soup and we'll give soup out to people. And and like, that's not what Broad Street does. They don't want to just serve chicken soup to people standing in line on the street, you know? So um, their mission... It's Dickensian. Right, exactly. Their mission is, is... is to, to, to be an actual service to people. So what we, um, we canned my stupid ass idea and what we're going to do is, uh, take all the, the chicken backs and, and every, everything that we can't serve at federal donuts and make, um, a soup restaurant out of it basically. And a hundred percent of the profit goes to broad street ministry. Cool. When's it opening? It's called rooster soup. Well, I don't know. We're getting very, very close on a location. Um, so that's going to be happening really soon within the year. And then separately, there's a school um, in Philly called the Workshop School, which is all project-based learning. And they're going to take all of our um, chicken fat and fryer oil and convert it into fuel, biofuel, basically. And um, The fried chicken-powered car. Oh, my God. It smells so good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to wear a chicken suit and drive around a scooter in Philly with, like, you know, fueled by chicken fat or whatever. That's my dream. Um, but these guys are amazing. They um, they won, what was it, the X Prize? It was uh, the West Philadelphia High School had a uh, Simon Hauger basically was the uh, physics teacher, I believe, and also had this after-school program that um, took kids and, and taught them basically uh, how to, like, build cars, right? And then I can't remember the name of this, and I'm really shitty at this sort of thing, but there was this um, contest that was to build, the, I think, the fastest, maybe it was an electric car. And basically, the West Philly High School kids got second place. That's awesome. Like in the country, right? So the school, uh, he got his own school, and they're doing all this amazing stuff. They're going to work on um, powering a car with our... Uh, fryer fuel and they're also going to take the byproduct which is glycerin and make federal donuts soap and we're going to market it and sell it that's so, amazing so yeah. you could like call up federal donuts order some fried chicken and donuts have it delivered to you not that you do delivery no, but like in by theory me. literally literally by, by you yes. mike salamanov in a chicken suit and i'll sell you in a soap. biofuel powered scooter right with the chicken fat and, we'll and then you can wash your hands afterwards wash your hands and the the workshop school kids will with their we'll, soap. Exactly. We'll sell you soap. Then you take your Federal Donuts towel and wipe your hands off. And, exactly. And you go yeah. to sleep in your Federal Donuts bed <laughs> in your Federal Donuts house. In- I know. It's like a... It's all You're circular. taking over the world. I know. So are you going to come to New York? I bet everyone... I, you don't it's have a to big question, it. right? I don't know. We're looking to expand. We have four, um, and then we've got um, one at the ballpark, and then we've got another sort of top secret project that we're working on in Philly as well that isn't like you know um that's not like bricks it's something else and we're looking to expand i mean i don't know where it's gonna go we were looking in new york we have space in the eater office ah. oh yeah <laughs> i love it i think new york would be awesome i just think it's a lot i mean we sell donuts for like a buck 50 and chicken for like you know under 10 and i just we we need to figure out how to organize so we can keep it the same i don't want to just come to new york and make it expensive because we can you know yeah. it's not what our mission is do people ask you if you're going to expand to new york all the time all the time all the t- i'm sorry all the time no don't worry <laughs> about it you know for zahav i thought that that's like what we were gonna do i mean i thought that that would be the ultimate goal and being a chef in new york is kind of like the the thing right and um 
we were talking about it, but there's something really cool about having an Israeli restaurant in Philly that, that people go to from New York and from D.C. So I don't know. I, I New York is awesome, and I love it, uh, but it's nice being in Philly. Are you guys going to like beat me up? No, <laughs> no, no. We kind of, I don't know. I feel like we, I don't want to speak for Greg, but like I get kind of sick in New York sometimes. I like having a reason to leave. It's always good to have a reason to leave. And um, we've got like 10 reasons for you to leave. Yeah. Just 10. Boom. And more. there's more. that Bolt Bus. Yeah. Bolt yeah. Bus. So listen, before we say goodbye, we have a lightning round. Oh God. Okay. What is your airport vice? People Magazine and Sour Patch Kids. That's for a real? good one. Yeah. That's a good combo. That's yeah, a, totally. Like very well paired. Then you're all set up. You got like your first 30 minutes of the flight. Ready to go. Who's your favorite like people storyline? Like is, are you a Kim Kardashian guy or like the Princess Di reissues or like mm, what's your Usually jam? it's like the people that make fun of people for what they wear. <laughs> it's <hilarious>. The <laughs> commentary is great. It's fucking witty, you know? <laughs> Um, but I, I like the human interest story. I like have a hard time reading there in that particular magazine. But I, I don't know. It's like it's easy reading. Yeah. Uh, when you're on a road trip, what's the album that you blast? Hmm. That's a great uh, question. I have like mostly Beck CDs in my car. I like uh, sort of old and new Beck a lot. I'm like really into hip hop, and I feel like that um, does well with with cars. You yeah. know, like car trips. And I'm also. Because I was born in Israel, I'm really, like, secretly, I like, like, trance and, like, shitty, like, <laughs> house music. So, I, I like electronic music, okay? Fuck it, I said it. This there. is a safe space. It is a safe space. Nobody's here. Nobody can hear us. But um, I feel like that works really well in cars. If you were not a chef, what would you be doing? Hmm. That's a great question. I would probably be, like, a drug counselor and then, but really, I would just, like, I want to surf or snowboard all day. You know what I want to do? I want to make dinner for my family every night. That's what I want to do. And it's going to take a little bit of time to get there. How often do you cook for your family? Not like like maybe twice and like ever. <laughs> well, our next question actually is yeah. what is your go-to meal for cooking for your family off the cuff? Oh, so here's what we do. We actually have – we'll have like leftovers from um, our barbecue restaurant, Percy Street. Um, so that was a gratuitous plug, right? <laughs> we get brisket from Percy Street Barbecue on, uh, you know, in between 9th and 10th on South Street in Philadelphia. And we, <laughs> uh, it's so, uh, seriously, the brisket is like out of this world. I would, Aaron's brisket is better than. Is it like Southern style brisket? It's or Texas style. Okay, so it's Texas style brisket. It's Texas, right? So it's like the best kind of Jewish deli meats, right? Texas. So I would battle any brisket with that brisket. We'll have leftovers and there's also... On 9th Street, which is very close in the Italian market, is a tortilleria, and they make fresh tortillas, right? And you can get a kilo of it for like three bucks. So we take leftover beans, and we take um, leftover burnt ends, and we make like a bean burnt end situation, and we put it on fresh tortillas with cheese. It is so freaking good. Best. That sounds like good. a whole new restaurant there or it's something. It's so good, yeah. man. Fresh tortillas are like, there's nothing better with like barbecue brisket. It's crazy good. <laughs> Well, we wanted to thank you so much for coming into Yeah, uh, thank you guys so studio. much for having yeah. me. It's like such a pleasure. When does the book come out? October 6th. Yeah, yeah. October 6th. But I bet you could like pre-order it 20 years go, in advance. Go yeah. right now and pre-order it. You can go to our website or you can go to the place where you pre-order everything. That I'm one not website? I'm sure if I'm allowed to say it. Right. Yeah, but in any case, pre-order it right now. I think it's like inexpensive. 
All right, so do it. Or okay. come to Philly and check us out, yeah? Wait, if I want to get into, like, EDM, what should I listen to? Oh. <laughs> Israeli EDM, specifically. I don't, you know, if you want, like, um, I like the progressive house from, like, the late 90s. Um, <laughs> but if you want, like, good electronic music, listen to, like, Diesel Boy. He's, like, the best. Okay. On the ones and twos. He's a foodie, by the way. Yeah, he's awesome. I don't even know what ones and twos means. Like DJ, like like turntables, one and two, like Poly D on the ones and twos. <laughs> I'm like the uncool kind of nerd. <laughs> yeah, but Diesel Boy's sick, so um, check him out. All, All right. right, cool. Awesome. Thanks for being here, Mike. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Awesome. On the next episode of the Eater Upsell, Helen and I will talk with Anita Lowe of Anissa, New York City. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to itunes.com slash eateruppsell. And as always, you can visit eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editor is Dion Lee. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening. Bye.